0: Hello and thanks so much for joining the Invisible Americans podcast with Jeff Madrick and Carol Jenkins. We address the travesty of child poverty here.
1: There are nearly 13 million children living in serious material deprivation in America and we don't see them. They are our invisible Americans and we plan to change that.
0: A couple of words about us. The podcast is based on Jeff's book, Invisible Americans, The Tragic Cost of Child Poverty. He's an economics writer, author of seven, and co-author of another four books on the American economy.
1: And Carol is an Emmy-winning journalist, activist, and author, most recently president of the ERA Coalition, working to amend the Constitution to include women.
0: And we are longtime colleagues and friends.
1: In today's episode of the Invisible Americans podcast, we have a chance to talk with two champions of ending child poverty altogether. Senator Michael Bennett, lead sponsor of a bill to restore the expanded child tax credit for all children in the United States and then-philanthropist Holly Fogel, who has dedicated $35 million of her foundation's resources to supporting children in New York with cash grants to their mothers for the first thousand days of the child's life. We begin with Senator Bennett. On July 13th of this year, he held a hearing on the Senate Finance Committee commemorating 25 years of the idea of giving tax credits to families. He has introduced the American Family Act, which would restore the expanded version that was in place for six months in 2021 and cut child poverty in half.
0: Thank you so much, Senator Bennett, for being with us today. Uh, Jeff and I are both uh, child tax credit nerds. We loved every second of your hearing. We watched it from beginning to end. And took <laughs> and we have it up on our on our podcast, our website now, so that other others who are interested in children and poverty can also take it in.
2: Well, thanks for being child tax credit nerds. That's what we need. And thank you for that for that. I I enjoyed the hearing. I think we got I think we made pretty clear, hopefully, that there are some pretty significant choices in front of this country.
1: For sure. Well, did you get good response to the hearing?
2: I think we've gotten good response. Um, it's just one building block along the way to trying to get ready for what we're hopefully a negotiation we'll have at the end of this year, I hope. And and then uh, once again in 2025, when the Trump tax cuts for the wealthy expire, we've got to decide what we're gonna do um, to replace them. But I think people will go back to this hearing as kind of a touch point on what these distribution tables look like, what it actually looks like to to be able to write a tax bill that benefits working people and and poor people versus what it looks like to write a tax bill that just benefits the people at the very top.
1: Well, I think all of us here will look forward to that. I know I started working on the child tax credit in 2015, And especially, I could not find progressive economists who were in favor of unconditional tax credits. That was sort of a a bridge that you couldn't get over. I wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times and got all kinds of bitter, angry letters about how the poor will just spend the money on themselves. When did you get converted to the child tax credit unconditionally?
2: It really was in I think in 2017 when we wrote it, but I had some folks come to see me, Bill and David Harris from New York, who were friends from a, for a long time. David actually wrote his his PhD thesis or his graduate school thesis on the child tax credit, and and they came and they met with me, and and I was convinced by that in part because I thought a lot about the kids that I used to work for in the Denver Public Schools when I was their superintendent. You know, Denver Public Schools is the largest school district in Colorado. It's very similar to many urban school districts in America. The majority of kids are kids of color and kids living in poverty. And I know how hard their parents are working. You know, this is not a matter of people not working. They are working. They're working two and three jobs. But no matter what they do, sometimes it seems like they can't lift their kids out of poverty. And the more I learned about the fully refundable child tax credit, the more I realized that it would give them just a little bit of incremental help that could actually dramatically reduce child poverty in America, which would help every single kid. And I know you've written about, about this, Jeb, would help every single kid in terms of, instead of just mitigating for the effects of poverty, lifting kids out of poverty to begin with, is, I think, not only just a better way to do it, but a a fiscally responsible way of doing it. But then from the country's perspective, the idea that the richest country in the world, which has one of the highest childhood poverty rates in, in the world, in the industrialized world, could be able to say to itself, we don't have to accept this level of childhood poverty as a permanent function or feature of our democracy or our economy. And and then we can actually cut it in half. I want to end childhood poverty in this country, but, but that fully refundable child tax credit was a big step in that direction. So the miracle happened. The miracle happened.
1: Congress passed this unconditional child tax allowance. Yeah. Then it was thrown out the window, which so discouraged us advocates. What was the key factor in Congress ending the program?
2: My colleague, and, you know Joe Manchin, who just could not be persuaded of the benefits of the child tax credit, he was worried about how families would spend the money. He was worried that it would disincentivize work. I think that the data around the world where, where countries have child allowances, even more generous than the one that we had, Uh, makes it very clear that it has not been a disincentive for work. In fact, the opposite is true. The countries that have more generous child allowances than we have have higher workforce participation rates than the United States. And that's not surprising to anybody who's spent any time with poor people in America you know what you hear people will tell you I said it the other day at that hearing that there's a tax for being poor it's hard to work in America if you're poor because you have to afford transportation you have to afford after school programs you have to afford early childhood education and it's no wonder that fam- a lot of what families spent that child tax credit on was paying for child care so that they could work and I think we saw in America, that if anything, there was no effect. And there might actually have been for some families, the opportunity for them to to take more hours at work. So I have not been able to persuade that, mansion of that. I've not, he also, you know, thought that families would spend the money on what he thinks of as improper things. Uh, It's very clear that they spent the money on their kids, and they spent the money on things like you know, back to school clothes and and rent and food and you know I had mom after mom after mom say to me that the most important thing from the child tax credit is that it would relieve their family of incredible stress because for once they weren't having to choose between rent and food or school clothes and and rent and you know, there is enormous stress in our economy because for 50 years we've had an economy that's worked. Really well for the very top, and not so well for people living in poverty and and for you know, people that are hoping to turn a middle class life over to their kids. It's been a real struggle. So we just have to go back to the drawing board, and we're going to have to have to convince Joe Manchin and maybe some Republicans that this is a virtuous thing to do for America.
0: Senator Bennett, so many interesting things in that hearing. Number one, you're at the very top reminding everybody that maybe this was a Republican idea. It started uh, that way. And then uh, your extensive conversation with Senator Johnson from Wisconsin, 15 minutes of it. And, you know, since we're nerds, we were like our noses up to the screen saying, what's going to come out of this? At some point, you two seem to agree on some things. And if you could tell us what your reaction was
2: first of all carol i appreciate you know the chance to have that kind of debate i do think one of the things i tried to do with the hearing was just give people the time they needed and i was not using it as an opportunity just to get my witnesses to say what i wanted them to say i kept encouraging the people on the other side i want to get the argument out because i think in the end our argument's much stronger than their argument especially when what you want to defend is a Trump tax, you don't, but they did, a Trump tax cut where 52% of it went to the top 5%, you know, at a time when we've got the worst income inequality that we've had since 1920. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here for people to work together. Some people don't know the history of the child tax credit, as you mentioned, you know, it was a part of, believe it or not, the first, the first legislative version of it sprung from the contract for America, that Newt Gingrich led uh, as in that in that very radical Republican House, uh, to to the point that that was being we were discussing earlier. George Bush, when he was president, is the one that made it refundable for the first time, partially refundable. So there is a Republican track record here, which augurs, I think, well for bipartisanship. And the thing is, I agree partly with what. Senator Johnson said, which is, I don't defend every government program that's out there. One of the things that I like about the child tax credit is that you don't need an, an additional bureaucrat in the federal government to administer it. This is a credit that families get to decide how to spend on behalf of their kids. I think that's a more efficient way of doing it. And there are lots of things I worry about, you know, in terms of things that, you know, the way government works or doesn't work. I mentioned earlier I was a school superintendent. I'm deeply worried about the fact that in America, if you look at our lack of preschool education, the lack of quality of K twelve education, and the expense of higher education, when you add all of that together, it is a fact. I hate to say it, but it is a fact. And Raj Chetty's data bears this out. If anybody wants to look at it, that our education system is reinforcing the income inequality we have as a nation rather than liberating kids from their circumstances, which has led me to conclude that we need a revolution in the way we deliver K-12 education and and in the way we deliver early childhood education, not to mention higher education. You know, that's not always a popular view uh, uh, among elected officials, but that is my view because I have seen firsthand what the difference makes, you know, what the difference, what kind of difference it makes for a kid who has access to a high quality education versus a kid that's going to a school that no kid in America should have to go to. And and so I do think there is the opportunity for us to work in a bipartisan way to ref- consider what things have not worked well, what things we need to do better. Ron, there's some things I disagree with Ron Johnson on. For example, I think social security has done an amazing job reducing poverty among seniors. You know, And one of the reasons I like the child tax credit is that It looks a little bit like Social Security for kids, and no kid decides to be born poor in this country, and they ought to have some assurance or some chance, you know, to think that everybody in America is going to have a chance, and that's what the child tax credit is all about.
0: And you two talked about a roundtable. Is that going to happen?
2: We'll see. I hope so. I hope we're, you know, the more we can get people talking about the child tax credit ta- and understanding, I think, these distribution tables, that's a boring way of saying what what country, what kind of choices America should make on taxation. And I hope it's one that reflects the reality of the American economy. You heard a lot of people the other day talking about the 1990s. This is not the 1990s anymore. You know, I still believe we can create an economy in America. In fact, I believe we have to create an economy in America where when it grows, it grows for everybody, not just the people at the very top. And that's the kind of stuff at a roundtable we really could talk about. And I think the format of these hearings is not the greatest way to do that. Having a debate, going back and forth, being willing to try some things. I mean, you know, one of the things about this experiment, Jeff, with the child tax credit is, you know, we should have left it in place. If for nothing else, it would have given us a great chance to explore the potential of this policy idea. And I think based on what data we did have for the six months, it looked like it was going to be a complete home run. I mean, I think if you, you I know you watched the hearing the other day, it was interesting to me that the people that were the opponents of the credit were basically they were not saying that the evidence was different from what I'm saying. They were saying there are reasons why you might want to disregard that evidence because yeah. it was during COVID or because there was other stuff going on. That's kind of an interesting take.
1: One thing that persists in the uh, in the poverty policy arena long before even this discussion started is that welfare allows people not to work just can't get rid of that argument no matter how much evidence is presented your witnesses presented some serious evidence and the opposition presented barely an outline of contrary evidence how does one deal with this work issue
2: yeah well first of all you got to keep delivering the evidence look it's intuitively you can understand why people would say well wait a minute if you give somebody a benefit," That's fully refundable. Maybe that means they're going to be less likely to work. I I understand how somebody might believe that. That's not what the data shows, you know. And if you're if you are a working family in America, that's work that's facing thousands of dollars to pay for childcare, for example, or thousands of dollars to pay for preschool, or to, hundreds of dollars for after school programs. Having a benefit of you know ten additional dollars a day is not going to make you quit your job. What it is gonna make you do is buy a little bit more childcare so you can stay at the job. What it is gonna do is allow you to buy you know, a little bit of an after-school program or maybe some transportation so your kid can stay at school and you can stay at work. And that's what we see in other countries and that's what we saw uh, during the time that the credit was there. 70 to 80% of the people that benefited from the fully refunded child tax credit who are now not benefiting from it on the same measure because it's been taken away Seventy to eighty percent of those people were working. Were working, you know. And and if you look at the the people that have lost the benefit of that credit as a result of the changes they made, seven hundred thousand janitors and housekeepers, seven hundred thousand cooks and waiters and farmers and ranchers, six hundred thousand teachers and child care workers, half a million half a million health care aides in America, four hundred thousand construction workers. I mean, I think the data I showed at that hearing the other day was that if you add up the people that are working with the people who have a kid under the age of two, with the, and, and, and even the Republicans say, look, you know, if you got a kid under the age of two, maybe <laughs> it'd be better for you not to be working. And then there are kids who are living with seniors. And you add all that up, you get to about 95% of the people that have the credit. So I think this idea that somehow... This credit is gonna disincentivize people from working on the facts, both anecdotally and in the data. It's just completely wrong. And the benefit to America to, you know, lifting kids out of poverty, not having to pay for mitigating the effects of poverty. Poverty, childhood poverty costs America about a trillion dollars a year. Columbia University has told us that if you just look at America, not, not the kids themselves, but just America, that the payback on the child tax credit is eight or nine times because of loss, you know, then reduced incarceration because of reduced uh, welfare programs and other social programs. You know, there's nothing better you can do than give kids a better start. My position on this is that we should end childhood poverty in America. That should be our starting point. And I'd even be willing to accept there might be the risk in a very, very tiny, almost imperceptible number of people, that somehow we didn't get the incentive actually right, but the benefit to the entire country is just a tidal wave that overcomes all of that, and we've just got to keep making the argument and making sure people understand who the people are. They're getting cut off by this credit, you know. I think there's this idea somehow. Sometimes in America, you you hear this. Debate about virtuous poor people and unvirtuous poor people. Well, I can tell you this the parents that were working in the Denver public schools, and I, when I was there, were killing themselves every day to go to work to support their families. Their families were killing themselves every day to support themselves. Hard work is not a problem for this country. The problem this country has is that we've had a winner take all economy for the last 50 years that's benefited the top. 0.1%, the top 1%, the top 5%, to the detriment of everybody else. And you know what? That in, in, When people lose hope in an economy, in the history of mankind, of humankind, they lose hope in a democracy, that opportunity is going to be there if they work hard for their family. That is when somebody inevitably shows up and says, I alone can fix it, as Donald Trump said. You don't need a democracy. You don't need the rule of law you should expect your public sector and your private sector to be hopelessly corrupt, hopelessly bankrupt. And and if you don't believe that, you're a sucker. That is not what the parents in the Denver Public Schools believe. That is not what the parents all over rural Colorado and all over rural America who benefited from this believe. And that is, you know, when you think about it, it's unimaginable. I can't think of another program that in in american modern american history that's benefited more kids 90% of the american children 62 million kids the irs did what it was supposed to do it worked it didn't take one extra bureaucrat give it a chance to work you know and i'm there to to ask what else can we do for america's kids you know i'm not going to defend programs that don't work we are going to have to figure out how to have a better education system in America than the one we have, just to take that as an example. But the child tax credit, the fully refunded child tax credit that Sherrod Brown and I wrote, you know, frankly, there has not been a more significant domestic policy in this country since the 1960s, and we got to keep fighting for it.
0: Well, Senator Bennett, we want to thank you so much for being with us. We know that you have a very busy schedule today. So thank you for your passion.
2: I appreciate your following this. Please let me come back and let's stay in touch and let's keep fighting, because the richest country in the world should not have some of the highest numbers of childhood poverty. We just shouldn't have it. In our own interest, our own interest is a country to say nothing of the interest of kids who did not ask to be born poor. So thank you.
1: We're gonna keep fighting.
2: All right, thanks for having me. Thank you. Good luck.
0: Allie Fogle grew up in the Appalachian foothills. She witnessed the effects of poverty on children firsthand. In her post-successful life in finance, she has dedicated her efforts and resources to giving mothers what they need, cash. Her BRIDGE project now supports hundreds of mothers with up to $1,000 a month in cash for the first 1,000 days of the child's life. That's the most crucial development time. Holly is putting $35 million of her foundation's resources into this project, hoping others will join her. Holly, so glad you are here. You know, this idea that you had of simply saying, give them the money, is exactly what Jeff has been saying as well. Give them the money. You have such an interesting personal story. Tell us about that, Uh, Appalachia then going to Wharton Business School and, and all of that. How you got to this point?
3: Yeah, oh, I'm delighted to be here, Carol. And Jeff, thank you guys for having me. And you're right. I think this is what makes the Bridge Project in some ways really interesting is that it is so simple and it is so scalable. And I think a lot of that was grounded in, as you said, my upbringing. So we have three sort of basic tenets at the Bridge Project. And one that starts um, and underlines everything is the dignity of people. So I grew up in the Appalachian foothills on the Ohio West Virginia border. And I witnessed poverty firsthand every day of my childhood. And I watched it obliterate hope and I watched it devastate families. But I also watched resiliency and determination, um, particularly of women and particularly of mothers. And I really believe that we rise to our better angels. And I see people, when I think of our bridge moms, I see people not problems. And I certainly believe in a mother's love and that there's just nothing fiercer than that. And I think that really led us to these other sort of two tenets of the bridge project. One is that we need to try to prevent versus undo as a country. And so to me, right, as a philanthropist, that meant babies, not after school programs or other things. And the first thousand days of life really, really, really matter. And I know you two both believe that um, as well. But you know, I think just these um, the academic research keeps piling up around this, and yet we don't act as a country like we have read any of that. Uh, so this idea of preventing versus undoing is really important to me. And you know, the last bit I think that again, that journey of my life has informed is that the return on investment really matters. So my husband and I are both Wharton finance majors. I'm a former McKinsey partner. My husband is a venture capitalist we have about $35 million of our own money committed to the bridge project. And I think the reason that is, is because we deeply believe that cash is the most efficient, effective tool we have as philanthropists and as policymakers. You know, I was reading a study, an old study actually out of Princeton, but it said that food stamps are valued at 80 cents on the dollar by recipients and 65 cents on the dollar in the underground market. And that's the most efficient sort of government program we have. So I hate bureaucracy. Right. So when I think we can just actually get cash in the hands of moms at 100 cents on a dollar, like I'll take that every day.
1: When I read about your foundation and your charity work, I was so delighted to see how you emphasize cash. I think some people who may be listening to this may not understand the history of that, because for a long time, especially in right wing circles, cash was the enemy. Cash indeed, they claimed, was the cause of welfare. It caused dependence. And uh, it's really great that not only have you pursued this, but you have some evidence that cash really works. What kind of evidence is it?
3: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Jeff. And so I think it's important, you know, it probably makes sense given the background I just said to you that I really love data. And so we weren't just gonna go at this from a, this is gonna feel good, but what does it actually mean? And so we started the Bridge Project three summers ago. So we're with our third cohort of mothers now. And the first cohort we're working very closely with the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Guaranteed Income Research. And you know they're looking really deeply at a bunch of different metrics, But and it's early days, right? But what we are seeing right now is that the early data shows a lot of signs of increased financial stability. So mothers are able to afford, um, better able to afford childcare, and they're starting to build up emergency savings. So those are important factors in terms of uh, thinking about the financial stability of a household and the ability to, you know, go buy diapers if you need to buy diapers, or go buy formula if you need to buy formula. The longer-term research that we just started to look at recently, we're only two years into that first cohort, is that the payments are lessening chaos and increasing organization and harmony. And those are research terms, those are also just normal English terms, but they actually mean something on the scales that the researchers are using around household stability, which I think is a great sign for what we hope will then be lots of additional data to come down the road.
0: Holly, talk to us about, uh, you you started this in New York City and, and it keeps growing, expanding. And these are sizable payments, you know, it, guaranteed income is spreading across the country, probably because of your, you know, impetus uh, in this. I know lots of mayors are doing it now, but a lot of the payments are, you know, $200, $300. So You started with $1,000 uh, for the thousand days of a child's life. Talk to us about that amount. Pretty hefty investment.
3: Yes, two things. I would say back to this idea of preventing versus undoing. It sounds like a lot, but I mean, if we think it costs half a million dollars to keep one person incarcerated in Rikers Island, that's a lot of money too. So I would rather spend money on preventing versus undoing. And in our very first cohort, we actually split the moms and half were receiving $500 and half were receiving a thousand as sort of one of our first tests. We're always testing, always trying to learn. And what we um, talked about very deeply with the Penn researchers is that we really were not seeing the same sorts of movements in the $500 cont- group as we were with 1,000. The they weren't accessing childcare. They weren't able to go back to work at the same rates. And I think what, what they felt and we felt, and they were also doing some other pilots on the West Coast, is that in cities as expensive as New York, you really need to have a substantial payment in these earliest days of life to make a difference. And you know it's pretty incredible because the average household income of one of our moms is fourteen thousand household, right? Fourteen thousand dollars seven hundred. You know, if you think of diapers costing almost a thousand dollars a year the first year of life, that extra cash really provides some important financial stability.
1: Another thing that intrigues me about your work there are actually two parts. One is how much you emphasize. It. That the mother should be autonomous. There are no conditions on there. Mothers, even though they're poor, can make decisions at, about their children. And they uh, emphasize this in Europe as well. Uh, so let's just stay on that. Where did you get this idea? Is this from your own experience?
3: You know, I think a few places, Jeff, you know, certainly my own experience of seeing what and how women made decisions living in poverty in Appalachia and good decisions. Um, but, you know, I think where this really got honed for me was we had been working in early childhood in a while, for a while in New York City. And when the pandemic hit, uh, we really were close to a bunch of the grassroots organizations that were on the front lines. And what we just heard across the board, because of course the city was in lockdown, their clients, these mothers were and babies, were really suffering, but they could not get them help fast enough. You know, I think that was the kernel of the idea of what if we just got them cash, because that's what they really needed most in those moments. And then we followed up with them and we said, what happened? What What did you do with that cash? And the answers were so different, right? Of course, people are buying diapers. Of course, they're buying food. Of course, they're giving a bit of dollars to their their rent, to the landlord for rent. But, you know, one mom I'll never forget said to me, I have to keep my cell phone on because I have to speak to my mother every day. She is the best mental health therapist I have, and if I can't keep this cell phone on, I don't know what I will do. I will lose my mind. And I think she meant that quite literally. Um, And so I think when we saw how how this was in practice then applied and that moms are making minute by minute resource allocation decisions so wisely, it became a no-brainer for us to then think about how would we expand this and grow this you know and the and the huge benefit that i know you guys talk about a lot is the country actually did a pilot just like this called the expanded child tax credit where we saw enormous amounts of benefit and a, and a lot of very good decision making on the part of of parents
0: one of the things that uh, as i was reading your responses to people even good hearted people who say well maybe these mothers once they get the money should take a financial literacy course or something like that. And I love your response, you know, is that, you know, these mothers know how to stretch 10 bucks, you know, much less, you know, do it. So talk to us about I I think just the, and you use the word patriarchy too, when you say we're removing patriarchy from this giving, this, this cash system.
3: Well, I believe this so deeply, Carol. And I'll maybe I'll tell you a story on this one that I think maybe illustrates it better than anything I will say. Um, could, which is a story about Anna, who was one of our early moms and 71% of our moms have less than hundred dollars in savings when they enter the program. So there is no safety net in this household, in all these households. So when we ask her about her total savings, she tells us she has $20 hidden under her mattress and she is not going to spend it for food or for rent or for back to school supplies because her oldest child has severe asthma. And in her neighborhood, the ambulances are slow. And so the $20 is her taxi fare to get that child to the hospital in the middle of the night in the event of an asthma attack. So when that is a trade-off that a mother is making every day, that weighs on her soul. So I think you know at the end of the day when people say, oh, can we trust them to make the trade-off? If she's worried about the trade-off of having enough money to save her child's life in the event of an asthma attack, versus buying protein for dinner. I'm not too worried about how she's making those trade-offs. I'm going to trust her completely to do what she needs to do for her family.
1: What strikes me and what I've written a fair amount about is racism at the heart of America's attitudes towards poverty. You have very high proportions of people of color in your program. What makes people like Senator Manchin, despite all evidence against it, believe that mothers of color will waste the money if you give it to the family.
3: Oh gosh, Jeff, I wish I could answer that. I wish I could talk to that man. I was like, he doesn't, he represents the state right where I grew up. Right. And I think, you know, I I we could trace this back, I don't know, maybe to Ronald Reagan and the welfare queen analogies of a long time ago. But you know, we just have so much evidence over and over again that people don't waste this money. It's not about drugs and alcohol or any of those things. And by the way, it's also not about sitting on a couch because people will say to me, oh my gosh, $12,000 a year. That's a huge amount of money. Like it's New York city. If your average household income was $14,000 a year before you've had a baby, and now you've got a new bill of a thousand dollars of diapers and formula, and you got to buy a crib for safe sleep. And all of those things are happening this is not a lot of money. And you know we've seen this in guaranteed income pilots across the country where people actually go back to work at higher rates um, and they end up with better paying jobs because they're actually able to take that day off of work knowing that if they get fired because they missed that work and they don't have any time off to look for this other job, that it's okay. They can still feed their family tonight. They can still pay rent this month. And I think there are, there are just a lot of really detrimental stereotypes out there around women and around black and brown women and you know i think it's really holding us back as a country and fundamentally you know i say i'm a baby person um so this is about regardless of what we all then want to think about a mother fundamentally this is about our future as a country and our future workforce our future healthcare recipients and we know that if we can help stabilize those first 1000 days of life when that brain is developing at incredible rates We are all going to be better off as a country.
0: Holly, you and your husband, my husband, have committed $35 million to this for the New York City area, and it's expanding. How much do you think it will cost? And I know that you've got partners who are coming in as, you know, contributing and and want to copy your very successful uh, model. But how much do you think, what do we need money-wise to actually cure this issue?
3: It's a great question, Carol. You know, I mean, ultimately, it's a lot, right? So I think at the end of the day, I'm deeply supportive of reinstating the child tax credit on a federal level at a 10-time return on investment. That just makes good economic sense, right, for our country. In the meantime, we've been working with New York City Council Speaker Adrian Adams to think about a bill for New York City that would expand some programs like this. And at the New York State level, Senator Jessica Ramos has introduced a bill at the Assembly that would provide similar benefits to 15,000 moms across the state. But you know, this is where like in the meantime, we can make a tremendous amount of progress on this as private philanthropic people. I was just thinking like Jeff Bezos has been in the headline so much this week of the new yacht, right? That costs half a billion dollars. He buys one boat for one person or for that same amount of money, we could choose to lift every baby born into poverty in New York City, the largest city in our country, for 24 months, 24 months of babies lifting out of poverty or one boat, I mean, these are sort of the choices that are out there. So I really invite my fellow philanthropists to join me as we wait for these policymakers to catch up because, you know, to me, I see people and possibilities and we could do this in many, many, many cities in this country for thousands of babies.
1: I want to applaud you again for giving $35 million of your own money. I assure you, if I had that much, I would give it to you.
3: Thanks, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we're not taking any of it with us. The boat's not coming, right? So I think uh, if we could collectively as New York City philanthropists or American philanthropists leave legacies of worlds where we have babies and children flourishing, that's the world that I want to live in. So I just try to do my part to, to make that happen.
0: Oh, Holly Vogel, thank you so much. You are doing tremendous work. Uh, thank you for for all the input and thanks so much for taking time to be with us today.
3: Carol Jeff, pleasure.
0: Thank
1: you. Thank you. History will judge a nation's decency in various ways. One of them will surely be the well-being of all its children. American neglect of its poor children is both inexplicable and deplorable. By basic measures, it has the highest child poverty rate among rich nations in the world. A generation of careful academic research has shown how damaging this has been to children's cognition, health, nutrition, and future wages. In 2021, Congress and the President adopted an enlightened program that expanded the child tax credit and made it available to almost all children, no matter their race, ethnicity, or how little their parents earned. The results were stunning, cutting the poverty rate by half, but Congress refused to renew the program. In coming months, this podcast will examine the future of the child tax credit and other key policies to protect children from the destructiveness of poverty. We are dedicated to restoring a bright and optimistic future for all children in this land long celebrated for equal opportunity.
0: Thanks so much for joining us on the Invisible Americans podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. But we urge you to visit our website for transcripts, show notes, research, and additional information about our guests and their work. That's www.theinvisibleamericans.com. Please follow us on social media and our new YouTube channel. And our blog posts are up on Medium as well as our website. That's www.theinvisibleamericans.com. Jeff and I will see you the next time.